I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Deborah Turkheimer, professor and attorney. Her new book is Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. We're all shaped by what Deborah Turkheimer calls the credibility complex, forces that make us prone to credibility discounting of accusers, especially society's most vulnerable and marginalized women, and credibility boosting of the accused, most noticeably men of status and privilege. People who routinely meet out these discounts and boosts include police officers, prosecutors, school officials, workplace personnel, friends, roommates, parents, and the law itself. Deborah Turkheimer explores restorative justice's pros and cons and what it means to be vindicated within and outside the criminal justice system. She offers solutions for dismantling the credibility complex, showing how we can remake law and culture so that trust, blame, and care are no longer meted out along axis of power. She has an AB degree from Harvard and a JD degree from Yale and is a professor at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law and has served for five years as an assistant district attorney in the New York County District Attorney's Office, specializing in domestic violence and child abuse protection. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be talking with you today. Well, if we're going to be talking about why credible, why we doubt accusers and protect abusers, we, I guess we first have to understand what are we talking about in terms of credibility, what that entails, and how can we better evaluate it? When we're talking about sexual abuse allegations, so allegations of sexual assault or sexual harassment, I write in the book that when someone comes forward, uh, she, it's, it's normally a woman, although of course men and boys can also be victims, but when she comes forward, she's actually making three separate claims. She's saying it happened, she's saying it was wrong, and she's saying it matters that, that what happened actually ought to, to count for something. And we need to credit, we the listener need to credit each one of those claims if we're going to act in any way. If we don't credit all three, we really dismiss the allegation and along with it, the accuser. But why, and this is our tradition, and obviously I'm assuming this is why you wrote the book, we don't credit those three claims. We actually, as a culture, as you're saying, as a people and the law and all the people that I mentioned in the introduction, we discredit the accuser. So let's, yeah, let's start with that. Why do we do that? How do we do that? And where does it get us in terms of meeting out justice? Mm, Yeah, we do this thing I call credibility discounting. Uh, We downgrade the credibility of marginalized accusers, especially people who are vulnerable, people have less power, relatively speaking, in our society. And on the flip side, we boost the credibility of people who have more power, more authority, more privilege, more status. Um, And we we do this for a host of reasons. I mean, as you said in the the introduction, we're shaped by a, a cluster of forces. I mainly talk in the book about culture and law. And these forces really imprint themselves on our individual psyches. And so... Even those of us who are well-intentioned, 
and who have uh, really no desire to, to hurt someone or, you know, to make an accuser feel even worse. Um, nevertheless, we, we tend to do this because we buy into a host of myths and misconceptions, misunderstandings about abuse and abusers and victims. So what are those myths? Let's start with the myths, the misunderstandings, and the victims. Yeah. I think we need to start with this idea of stranger rape, this uh, paradigm that many of us know is not how most sexual assault or most sexual harassment occurs in the world. But yet, this is so deeply entrenched in how we think about assault and certainly how our legal system responds to assault. And because we tend to think that this involves a stranger in perhaps an alley at night with a weapon, when the accuser comes forward with a story that's different from that, um, we tend to discount, to, to, to disregard. And I'll give you a few examples of, of kind of what we come to expect of perfect victims. We expect her to fight back, to mount a whole lot of physical resistance. We expect her to report immediately. We expect her to have no further contact with her abuser. Um, she certainly ought not to have been drinking um, at any time before this happened. Uh, she uh, should be dressed in certain ways and not dressed in other ways. She should be the right amount of emotional, not too emotional where she's hysterical, but not too calm where she doesn't seem believable. And last, I'll say she ought to be able to recount what happened with precision, with no gaps in the narrative, in a linear fashion, in a chronological fashion. And even though neuroscience tells us that this is not how trauma works, we still come to expect just what is frankly unreasonable of victims when they come forward. And again, when victims fall short of this, we discount their credibility. Now, there are two things here I want to ask you, or I think these are related to two issues. That's how we feel, I guess, as you're describing it, as, as a culture. That's what we have in our minds, all of those, those reactions that you described. Now, does the law also say that, yes, we have to have the perfect victim? Does it go along with what we sort of emotionally feel about the victim? Absolutely, it does. The law reflects and it perpetuates this kind of mythology. Um, a few examples. And the idea of resistance is really baked into the, the criminal law. Um, it, it used to be that, again, physical resistance and a whole lot of it was required before something would even be defined as rape. Um, and, and now we, we tend to move away from that as a formal matter in criminal law, but we still require verbal resistance, some kind of, some, some kind of behavior on the part of a victim um, that, that tells the uh, perpetrator that consent cannot be assumed. And in the absence of verbal resistance, consent is assumed, and it's, it's there for the taking. And that, I think, is, is hugely problematic. Um, we have reporting requirements in both criminal and civil law that sort of, again, bake in this idea that if someone doesn't come forward right away, she's not to be believed. We have voluntary intoxication defenses in criminal law 
that say that when someone voluntarily drinks alcohol, um, she's, she's not a worthy victim in essence, and, and, and the assailant can't be prosecuted for rape. And so on and on and on, and these are just examples, um, a few examples from the book that show that our cultural tendency um, to insist on perfect victimhood is very much mirrored in the law. So, Deborah, can we put this in, I say, put a face on it uh, in social work terms, put a face on it. I'm thinking of two people right now, two politicians, uh, Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Governor, ex-Governor Andrew Cuomo. How do they fit? Can you put them, fix, put them into sort of what we've been talking about so we can see how it works in real life? Yeah, I do talk about the, the Kavanaugh um, case in the book, Cuomo um, <laughs> happened after the book went to press. But let me talk first about Kavanaugh, and in particular about Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and, and her testimony. Um, the ways in which she was discredited because, again, her account wasn't seen to conform to this idea of how victims ought to describe their attack. Um, and this is an example that she actually described as just a misunderstanding of trauma, that memories wouldn't be fully complete. And we would tend to remember central details rather than peripheral details. It's also an example of what I call in the book the care gap, meaning that even if Dr. Blasey Ford was believed about the what happened part of her account, Frankly, there were many people that just didn't care. They didn't care as much about what happened to her as they did about um, the impact that her account, if acted upon, would have on the future of Brett Kavanaugh. He was seen as entitled to become a Supreme Court justice by many people, um, and that's people within the political system and the, the public, the onlookers who were sort of weighing in in different ways. And, you know, I think that this is a really nice, if, if horrible, illustration of how we tend to prioritize um, the, the powerful and the privileged. And we care deeply about not, quote unquote, ruining their chances or derailing them from what's seen as a promised future. It's kind of that, or part of it is that boys will be boys attitude, you know, especially with Brett Kavanaugh. He was in, you know, he was in uh, prep school and, uh, you know, it doesn't really count and on and on for those kinds of excuses. But um, I go back to boys will be boys and they, that's yeah. used. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And I, you know, and I did talk earlier about the perfect victim and how that, you know, kind of comes out of this stranger rape paradigm. Well, we also have this notion that the abuser is a, is a monster. And I, you know, call this the monster abuser archetype. That's problematic too, because most abusers aren't monsters. They have redeeming qualities. They are our neighbors and our um, coworkers. And if we don't recognize that they too can engage in this kind of behavior, then we're going to discount people who come forward against them. We're going to discount their accusers. And so I think it's really important to reckon in a clear-eyed way with how prevalent this is and how ordinary abusers can, can seem. They're not extraordinary. They're ordinary. Not to excuse the behavior, of course, and I call in the book for greater accountability, but I don't think that by demonizing 
these men were going to get very far. And, you know, that takes us to Cuomo, too. You had asked about Cuomo earlier. You know, there are many people that, that sort of seem to think that he was, um, you know, not capable of this kind of long-term harassment. And, you know, the evidence is, is quite overwhelming that that's exactly what was going on for many, many years. Yeah, and I have to say, just for myself, in terms of Cuomo, uh, in being honest, I've always liked his policies and what he's done for the mm-hmm. state, and not the personal, but ne- but or how I, I not wasn't aware of how he accomplished these things necessarily. But you know, he voted for the right things, or what I thought are, are the are right issues, and then discounted, as you're saying, the rest of the stuff that you would hear, mm-hmm. but you know, maybe mm-hmm. true, maybe not true. So probably guilty of some of the things that. That, that you're talking about, uh, which is not a good thing. <laughs> and some, well, yeah. But I appreciate that. I mean, I appreciate that, you know, reflection. And I would really encourage everyone who's listening in to, you know, to sort of do that same kind of introspection. It's what I call for in the book. And it's a book that doesn't point fingers or suggest that you know, this is a problem of bad apples or that we're doing this because we don't care about sexual abuse. Um, and so what I'm hoping is that, you know, greater awareness can really be the, 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 the impetus to rewire ourselves to do better. We, we all breathe the air of this culture and we drink the water and none of us is immune from these influences. But what we can do is start to see them and start to correct for them individually and, and then collectively. Yeah. And trauma. I, mean, I think you sort of touched on this before, but trauma isn't just the trauma of the event. If it's only one event, not only one of it, if it is one event or even several events, but trauma lasts for a lifetime. And the kinds of trauma that you're describing to, to women uh, aren't just in immediate, that it, it, it impacts their future as well as you were talking about Brett Kavanaugh, you know, being privileged, even though he given he did what he did, but um, it impacts what he's able to do for the rest of his life, too, um, which I think is important to recognize. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, this is something that, you know, I, I, I often hear from survivors, this notion that their lives really are changed forever. And, you know, this is true whether someone, you know, kind of gets far along the journey toward healing or doesn't get as far, right? What you said is is absolutely right that this experience will, will often, and for, for I think many or most survivors, be with them and, and shape the rest of their lives. And so that is, I think, a big part of the reason why accountability of some sort feels so essential, right? That there's got to be something that's commensurate with what, what this individual who was victimized is carrying with her for so many years to come. Isn't there something about our culture that we we recognize and we sort of we reward people who are powerful, who seem powerful? We don't like to see weakness, even when you have two males fighting with each other in a wrestling match or, or football games. You know, you root for the powerful one, the the the, the aggressor. The, there, there's something about that. I'm not sure where it comes from, but it can even be translated into to two males. Uh, fighting mm-hmm. or being aggressive with one another. Yes, I mean, we do have sort of a culture of toxic masculinity and this um, this notion of, of aggression on power as as being really attractive qualities, I think is a big 
part of that. So I'm thinking about, and I raised three boys, and that was a challenge too. I'm going to sort of present the other side. I don't know if it's the other side, but it's another way of looking at things. And one of my boys, when he was in high school, we lived down the street from somebody who had two girls, and and one of them had a crush on him and wanted him to babysit. And uh, he didn't have too much time to babysit. He was on the swim team, and one of the I think she was let's say eight years old, and he babysat a couple times, and then he began to tell me about how she was. You know, she really did have a crush on him. She wanted to sit in his lap. And as a mother protecting her son, this is another side of it, I was like, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm afraid maybe mm-hmm. that you'll get put yourself in a position where uh, she, you know, you say no to her and she'll get, you know, as a little girl, she'll get angry at you. And so I kind of, put, he didn't really have too much time to do to babysit anyway, but so I didn't allow him to babysit for her. I, I, I don't know why I'm, mm-hmm. I, that, you know, in, in, reading your book and thinking about all of these issues, that was sort of something as a, a mother of sons I was always challenged with. What do you, you know, that's mm-hmm. also part of this culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that parents of, of um, boys or girls, but now we're talking about boys, um, you know, really do serve their children well when they get them thinking about kind of power imbalances and relationships that are structured along, um, you know, lines of authority, or in this case, you know, an age gap and how that can be, let's put it in the you know best light possible, really messy and complicated. And so that there needs to be care taken in those relationships. I, I think that's right. And I think that in the book, a lot of what I talk about comes down to kind of inequalities and power imbalances. And I think as a society, and certainly in our families, we would be better off if we were talking about um, these disparities and ways in which they might impact um, interactions, relationships, and certainly sexual encounters um, between people who are not sort of similarly situated. Uh, what about your t- you're a professor of law, so you're teaching law students, and I assume the age range is, what, maybe 10 to 15 years? You have older students and, and, and younger students, meaning students mm-hmm. in their 20s. Yeah. What's their reaction? I mean, that's a whole new generation coming up, and, uh, you know, since we've had the Me Too movement and they've been part of that, uh, I'd be curious to see what their reaction is, well, to your book and to your premise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is a generation that is very focused on consent, sexual consent, and thinking up through the nuances of that and recognizing that, you know, context matters a lot of what we're talking about, that these, you know, kind of situations can can be fraught and, you know, wanting to, I think, be more open in how we communicate about sexual consent. And so I think that really is a good development, and it comes about in large part because there's been kind of a revolution on college campuses, and then I think trickling down to high school education where we're starting to see more of these kinds of conversations spearheaded by the administrators and and even teachers. I don't want to pretend that that's happening in a uniform way across the country. I think there are certainly pockets where you're not seeing that, but 
by the time my students get, you know, get into law school, they are well versed in these conversations. They've thought through it a lot. And I think that's a little bit different from what I was seeing 10, 20 years ago and as a beginning law professor. Yeah, I mean that's interesting because I'm I'm picturing law <clears throat> law students, even college students, going to a bar. When now we can start going to bars, I guess we can. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. but and and you're going there to meet people. I'm just putting this kind of in an everyday context, obviously. And what it's what do you do? Like you mentioned the word conversation. Both parties have to open up the conversation. Let's say, you know, usually it's usually not always. But let's say it's it's the 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 male who comes over and and wants to talk to the the female and she doesn't want to talk to him or how do you navigate that? I'm trying to picture it in real in a real life scenario. Mm-hmm. What should mm-hmm. you do so that you don't wind up with this kind of the accused and the accuser and you know these kind of like really just opposite ends of the. Uh, mm-hmm you know, relationship. Uh, so what what do you do, like, to mitigate some of that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that these kind of clear, as much as possible, kind of open communication around um, what's wanted and not presuming um, that, you know, X means Y, but really trying to work through it either in words or through clear actions the notion of affirmative consent when it comes down to it, I think, is, is really gaining some traction. And you mentioned earlier the Me Too movement. I think that that has helped to kind of put some of this in the forefront that was really lurking in quieter conversations and, you know, more in so-called whisper networks. The idea that for many women, many of these sexual encounters, even when they weren't um, criminal sexual assault weren't particularly wanted and they were problematic even if they aren't, again, they aren't crimes and, you know, they ought not to be prosecuted. Even so, there's a range of sexual violation and I think that part of the, the, the benefit and the drawback of having these conversations is that they require nuance and they require care and not kind of grouping everything into one category or another, but but being precise. Don't we have to start, not in law school, but way before then, start with our young children, our young boys, our young girls, and to, uh, well, they're not going to read your book at that point, but introduce some of these these mm-hmm. ideas that, you, that you're writing about now. Yeah. It's important for parents yeah. to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's funny you should say that I had someone suggest to me that there's in this book sort of a, a children's version, that there's some way in which the, the concepts in the book um, could be broken down for a more appropriate age set um, that, that you're talking about. I, I am a you know, firm believer that it, within the family and with, within schools, which we've talked about earlier, these kinds of conversations can be had at early ages. And um, you know, focused on what's happening in the lives of these children. I'm not suggesting that, you know, anyone ought to hand my book to an eight-year-old or read it out loud, but but I do think that these concepts, these core ideas um, can have meaning to, to, to kids across developmental phases. Um, the more we can start getting these ideas across, um, I think the better off we're going to be as a society. Yeah, and, you know, it's, 
we have done that. I mean, I'm ta- thinking about my kids uh, with the time when, the, you know, strange, it was supposedly strangers were abducting kids and, and uh, sexual abuse was, you know, on the rise. And so mm-hmm. we had to talk to mm-hmm. our kids about it. And we part of what you've, mm-hmm. co- you know, talk about in the book, one of the things that we did, you know, you, somebody can do something to you or touch you in inappropriate places. It could be your teacher. It could be your counselor, your coach. It not, it's not some necessarily bad guy in a, in a white van who's going to pick you up and do those kinds of things. And we did address that part of it. So I see no reason why not to carry it further, which obviously you do in the book, and present some of these other issues to younger children. Yeah, and at the same time, we have an obligation to these children and teenagers who are going to, you know, grow into young adults and then older adults to do better in our response when these allegations surface. And so it's, you know, not enough to say to our kids, if this happens, you need to report, you need to tell someone, you know, we we should be saying that, but we should also do what we can to um, improve these flawed systems that now tend not to, uh, to respond effectively when someone does come forward. And especially if this person belongs to a more vulnerable or marginalized group, it is very likely that that person will be dismissed when, when she comes forward. And so, you know, we, we have our part to do too as adults here in thinking about um, what, what happens when someone discloses. Yeah, I'm thinking about, because now it it appears as, oh, the whole thing is just exploding. And women are, you hear people saying, well, all these women, they're just against men. And now it's us against them. And, you know, that's not a good thing. And so it it seems like it's all sort of coming to the forefront right now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, hence your book, which is is what we need. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't think it bodes well when we're screaming at one another either and mm-hmm. pitting us, you know, pitting ourselves against one another. We need these conversations. Mm-hmm. We need the Me Too moment. I know in my generation or my baby boomer generation, I had bosses who came on to me. I never said anything. It never reached a point where I felt that I needed to say anything. And I sort of pushed it aside. Um, and I could probably nine out of 10 of my girlfriends have been in that position, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. I really don't know anyone who hasn't been in some kind of a Absolutely. position. Yeah. And uh, yep. I was ha- yeah, having this conversation actually with uh, one of my uh, boys' wives, and she was really surprised. I said, you know, surprised to hear it from me and <clears throat> surprised to hear that that was true of all my, of m- m- nine out of 10 of my girlfriends. So mm. uh, the problem is there. We haven't talked about statistics. I don't know if that's necessary, but, you know, how prevalent <clears throat> the issue is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hugely underreported problem because just as you were describing in your own life, um, most victims of harassment and even assault aren't coming forward in formal systems to make these complaints. Maybe they're telling friends and family, maybe not, um, but we don't see these numbers reflected in our formal systems for the most part. And it is obviously hugely, hugely prevalent. I you know, will often be asked by, by men, what, you know, what is it that we can do? And, you know, one thing I say is first recognize that you're going to be hard pressed to find any woman in your life who hasn't had one of these experiences. And, you know, maybe she'll tell you about them and maybe she won't, but, but, you know, sort of start from the proposition that, um, you know, women have experienced sexual abuse of some kind along this continuum. Um, and, 
And at the same time, I want people, men and women, to recognize that the aftermath of abuse can be as bad as or worse than the abuse itself. When people come forward and they are distrusted, they're blamed or they're disregarded, any of those mechanisms for dismissal that we talked about earlier, well, that can be devastating. And especially when it's someone you trust, someone you, you, you love, um, you know, this is this reaction that we all have to the disclosures in our daily lives is hugely important, and it can help dictate the course forward uh, for this individual. It can help with healing. It can help lead to a path toward justice or can do just the opposite. Very well said. And we have 30 seconds left. Um, I could go on and on with this interview. Really very informative. Uh, the book is credible. Why we doubt accusers and protect abusers need to read the book. So, Deborah, tell us where we can uh, buy the book and what websites to go to for more, inf- more information about you and your writing. Thank you so much. I have a website, uh, com, And my name is spelled D-E-B-O-R-A-H. T-U-E-R-K-H-E-I-M-E-R. That site has all of the information about where you can buy the book, um, you know, all of the major online outlets, and hopefully in your independent bookstores as well. Great. A very important read. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 